our reading this morning, uh, two little readings, one from Luke and then one from Matthew. So, uh, so Luke chapter 18 and reading verses at 9 to 14. And it's entitled in the NIV, The Parable of the Pharisee and the Tax Collector. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other one, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Turn backwards in our Bibles now to Matthew chapter 4, and reading from verse 23, and we're reading into chapter 5, verse 12. Entitled in the NIV, Jesus Heals the Sick. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those who were suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who, who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's just pray now as, uh, as Paul comes up. Lord, we thank you for these readings, and we just pray that we can be those meek people uh, that come to you with a meek heart. Uh, pray now for Paul as he comes to uh, share your word. Uh, you be with him, Lord. Help him to share your words and help to uh, penetrate our hearts with what he says today. In your loving name, Lord. Amen. Well, good morning. It's wonderful to be with you. Um, my wife and my daughter joined me last year when we were here in the summer. We had the opportunity to be with you. My wife and my daughter right now are in the States visiting uh, her parents. Uh, she's from Georgia, from the south in the US. So it's just me at home with my son. Uh, it's a bit of a bachelor pad right now while they're gone. <laughs> um, but thank you for the opportunity to come and to be with you this morning in the house of the Lord. I bring greetings from our church, Hayestown Chapel which is a fellow member of the EFCC. 
Um, so it's always a joy to come and be in fellowship with others, other like-minded churches. I chose the passage this morning. Um, the Luke passage really helps to unpack and I believe helps us to understand some of what we're going to look at this morning from the words that Jesus taught. We're going to focus really on just verse 3 of chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel. One of the most well-known sections of Jesus' teaching in the Bible is recorded in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's Gospel. It's probably one of the most well-known of all of Jesus' teaching, and it's commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. I had us begin our reading in chapter 4, just to give a little bit of context. The closing verses of chapter 4 and the opening two verses of Matthew 5 show us that by this time, large crowds of people had begun to follow Jesus, were keen to hear what he was saying, but actually if you look into the texts, they really wanted to see the things he was doing. We see that Jesus, noticing the crowds were coming, took himself away up onto the mountainside in the first part of chapter 5. And it says that he sat down there and then his disciples came to him in verse 1. And then in verse 2, it says he began to teach them. His disciples are the ones he's primarily giving this teaching to. Though when you get to the end of his teaching, at the end of chapter 7, you realize that those crowds that he had moved away from had now come around. And at some point, they had begun to listen into the things that he was saying as well. Because in verse 28 of chapter 7, it says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, as was so often the case. Primarily, though, Jesus was teaching those things that we find in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's Gospel to his disciples, to those who had decided to follow him. And when you begin to take in the things that Jesus is teaching in what is this discourse, you see that what he is teaching them, what he is speaking into, is what it means to truly be a follower of Jesus. He's teaching his disciples. He's wanting them to understand, if you're going to follow me, this is what it will mean. And therefore, some would argue that it's more accurate to call this Jesus' discourse on discipleship rather than just a sermon on the mount. There's a real purpose to what he's saying here. The first section of his teaching, which is the section that we read, verses 3 down to 16, these deal with the character of a Christian. A Christian being someone who follows Jesus. The remainder of his teacher, the, large, the larger portion from verse 17 of chapter 3 through to the end of chapter 7, deals with the conduct of the Christian. So you have this initial part, which focuses in on the character of the Christian. The remainder, larger chunk, focuses in on the conduct. And often, when we turn to these passages, when we turn to this teaching of Jesus, we tend to turn to the conduct portion of the teaching, probably because they largely deal with the practical outworking of the Christian life. They deal with matters like turn the other cheek. They deal with matters like go the extra mile. They deal with matters like do not judge, or prayer, or giving, 
or fasting, and so on. However, realistically, we cannot expect to live in a manner that Jesus calls us to unless our character has first been transformed. Unless God has done his work of regeneration in our lives. Because it's only through the enabling power of the Holy Spirit at work in those who are his that anyone could even begin to live in a manner Jesus calls them to live, such as we find in the remainder of this teaching. Therefore, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I have found really helpful in understanding his teaching, says this, we are to be interested primarily in character before we consider conduct. As a Christian, as someone who seeks to follow Jesus, we must be primarily concerned about character before we consider conduct. What Jesus teaches here in these chapters is not live like this and you will be a Christian. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is not saying live like this and you'll be a Christian. He's saying because you are a Christian, you ought to live like this. Is that my mic? Sorry. I'm causing the, the rumble. Outward change in and of itself will not lead to an inner transformation. Rather, it is when there is an inner transformation within the life of a person that the outward change begins to take shape and begins to be noticed. And this is why I'm convinced Jesus begins his teaching here with his disciples with these first few verses, focusing on character, before he then goes on to consider the conduct. And he's wanting his disciples to grasp this. And so we come to the opening words. Jesus begins his teaching with a series of what are inextricably linked blessed statements, as we read them, starting at verse 3, going all the way down through verse 12. They're commonly known, and here in the NIV, they're given that heading, the Beatitudes. Each Beatitude, each of those statements, reflects a character trait that a Christian is called to exhibit. It's not that you will find some of these traits in some Christians, or it, it's while other traits would be evident in other Christians. What Jesus wants his disciples to grasp, and I think what we need to grasp, is all of these should be evident in all Christians. It's not that some will be meek, and some will mourn, and some will be poor in spirit. All of these, Jesus is saying, should be evident in all who identify them as my followers, all those who seek to follow Jesus. One way of looking at them is to see the first four as dealing primarily with one's relationship with God, while the second four primarily deal with the relationships between us and one another. And that perspective, you could say, at least ties into, we saw it in that Lego video, with the answer 
um, the expert, with Jesus' answer to the expert of the law who asked, which is the greatest commandment? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. The first four of these Beatitudes speak into what it means to love God. The second four speak into what it means to love your neighbor, to love one another. If you want to ever dig deeper into this, this is a book I'd really recommend. It looks heavy, it looks big, and you think, that's bigger than my Bible, how am I going to read that? But actually what it is, it's a collection of, Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 60 sermons through these three chapters, and they're brilliant. They're not heavy reading, they're practical, they're insightful, they're inspiring. This is, this is really a, a great go-to book whenever you're trying to unpack the Sermon on the Mount. It's called Studies in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's, it's really worth getting a hold of. So as we've considered that wide of context of what Jesus is teaching here, I want us to think about this very first statement that he makes this morning. Because in verse 3, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, happy, Blessed, literally to be envied, content. The whole world searches for happiness. People will seek all manner of ways to secure it. Unfortunately, though, much of what man chases after will not give you lasting happiness. It will often leave you feeling empty and hungry for more. The world will look at the rich and famous, those that they say are the haves. They will say they are blessed, whereas the have-nots are not. They've somehow missed out on the blessings. That's how the world might see it. But, you know, there are many who the world would define as the haves who would tell you they are far from content. They are far from feeling blessed. My wife and I, we met on the mission field overseas. We met in Pakistan, and for 30 years, we lived and served in South Southeast Asia. And we equally have met and known many who the world would define as have-nots, who truly are content and feel blessed. So how the world looks at those who are blessed is not how Jesus is defining it here in this teaching. In using the word blessed, Jesus is speaking of a quality that is not measured. It cannot be measured by material values. It's not about popularity ratings. It's not how many followers you have on TikTok or X, what was formerly known as Twitter. That's not what makes a person blessed or happy or content. It's not about how much is in your bank account, how many cars you own, how many homes you have or even how many kids you have. These are not things that make you blessed. He's speaking of a deeper level of blessing here, something that can only be experienced through a restored relationship with God. Only someone who's restored to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ can truly experience what it is to be blessed in a manner that Jesus is speaking of here. And so in these Beatitudes, in these verses, He's revealing a pathway that leads to that lasting happiness 
to that whereby one can say they are truly blessed. And it's in a manner the world cannot understand. So what is he saying then when he begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit? Well, the word he uses here literally is to, to, to crouch, to cower like a beggar. We talked about that. We sang it, actually, in one, of our, in one of our songs this morning. It relates to a pauper, in a sense, the extreme opposite of one who is rich. It speaks of one who has absolutely nothing to give. When he says the poor in spirit there, he's speaking of one who has absolutely nothing to give. And in spirit, he's not speaking of material poverty. He's speaking of an inner poverty. He's speaking of a spiritual poverty. It's widely understood that when Jesus starts out with this statement, as he does throughout these Beatitudes, he is referring back to some Old Testament texts. And in particular here, he is referring back to Isaiah 61. And that opening verse in verse 1, that one that he spoke of when he launched his ministry. Isaiah 61 verse 1 says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Jesus came. Jesus was anointed to preach good news to the poor. The poor in spirit. Those who recognize Spiritually speaking, they have absolutely nothing to give. God is their only hope. And there's a logical sequence. We're not going to this morning, but I encourage you, as you work your way through those Beatitudes, there is a logical sequence in what Jesus is teaching in these verses, and indeed, through the remainder of his whole sermon. And it's no accident. It never is when Jesus teaches. It's no accident that Jesus starts this discourse with his disciples where he does, with the poor in spirit. Because it's of necessity that that's where it begins. There is no entry into the kingdom of heaven unless we come to that realization that we are spiritually poor. To be poor in spirit is to recognize and acknowledge we are spiritually bankrupt. It's to come to that realization that I am spiritually bankrupt. There is nothing I can bring to God. There is nothing I can offer God. There is nothing I can do. I am completely unable to pay my debts to God. That's what it means be poor in spirit, to come to this realization that we are completely unable to pay our debts to God. We are spiritually bankrupt. And so, to help us understand this, I want to take us back to that Luke reading, Luke chapter 18. Notice who Jesus, whenever you read the parable, whatever the parable it may be, do dig in, do some digging. Who is Jesus teaching? Who is Jesus speaking to? And notice in verse 9, who is Jesus telling this parable to? It says, Jesus told this parable to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. That's who he was giving this parable to. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. 
In contrast to the self-righteous Pharisee who prayed, God, I thank you I am not like the other men. The poor in spirit are to identify with the tax collector. Notice how the tax collector prayed. The tax collector cried out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Here are these people. They looked very religious. They knew what to say. They knew how to act. They knew how to dress. They looked apart. But as you notice, what was the prayer of the Pharisee? He prayed about himself. God, I thank you. I'm not like him. I'm not like that. And so on. Jesus says, the poor in spirit, they're like the tax collector. Notice the manner of the tax collector. God, have mercy on me, a sinner, was all he could say. Notice the Pharisee stood up in Jesus' story. And he prayed about himself, that he's not like the robbers, like the evildoers, like the adulterers. It's as if he's trying to prove his goodness by highlighting he'd kept all the commandments. He goes on to say that he was thankful that he's not like, and then he points out that tax collector, thankful, I'm not like that tax collector, displaying this haughty, this um, proud attitude towards others, looking down on others, just who Luke tells us Jesus was speaking to. And then he points to all his righteous deeds in verse 12, doesn't he? He says, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. He was listing the things that he does as well. As if he wants God to understand just how good a person he is. So surely, I deserve to be a part of your kingdom. That's not how it is, though, is it? That mindset resonates with how the world thinks. Some nations, and I believe Australia is one of these, they have a point system if you want to be a citizen of that country. If you want to emigrate to America, uh, to Australia and be a citizen, you have to prove your worth to the government. You have to show that you can contribute. And some nations, that's their entry um, process. But there's a flaw in that system, surely. How do they check who is a desirable person? How do they check who is worthy to be a citizen of their country? Well, it comes down to academia. What A-levels did you get? What university degrees have you got? It comes down to what skills have you got? What can you do? What are your qualifications? All outward reflections. But none of these criteria indicate what kind of person you are. None of those criteria indicate your character. You see why Jesus is focusing on character first. They don't talk about what type of purpose you are. Imagine God's kingdom. What if God's kingdom was built on a point system? And none of us would get in. Absolutely none of us would get in if becoming a citizen of God's kingdom was based on a similar type of point system. If it was all down to our own merit, 
If we want to enter God's kingdom, we have to come like the tax collector in Jesus' story. He truly understood his spiritual state before God. He declared, effectively, he's declaring, I have absolutely nothing to give you, God. He came into the house of the Lord, not saying, hey, God, I'm here again. You must be pleased to see me. No, that's not how he came into the house of the Lord. He came into the house of the Lord, as it were, saying, Lord, I don't know why you'd listen to me. I am a complete and utter mess. Have mercy on me. That's someone who understands they are spiritually bankrupt. Look at his his behavior. Not just think of the words he said. Look at his behavior. The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. He beat his breast. And he said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Do you notice his, his behavior, his attitude? It reflects that of the prophet Ezra. Ezra, who we find in the Old Testament, was distraught at the state of the nation of Israel. And he prayed, oh my God. This is found in Ezra 9, verse 6. He says, oh my God, I am too ashamed to lift my face to you. Because our sins, speaking of the nation of Israel, our sins are higher than our heads. Our guilt has even reached to the heavens. The tax collector, Ezra, there's that same understanding, that same realization. I can't even look up. Or Job. When Job's finally, when Job's eyes are opened to the majesty and glory of God, in that moment, Job is filled with a self-abhorrence of shame of who he was and what he had done. Listen to what Job says in Job 42, 5 and 6. He says, my ears have heard of you. Speaking of God, he says to God, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes see you. My ears have heard of you heard of this God but now my eyes see you therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes when God opens our eyes to who he is the reality of who we are also becomes clearer and we realize how great how holy is God and how wretched how poor are we prodigal son could not face going back to his father as a son said at, at best if at all I go back as a servant but notice how the, how the father watched for him and just embraced him and welcomed him in because he came out of that attitude of one who is spiritually bankrupt when we grasp God's incredible glory we become increasingly aware of our utter depravity our sheer helpless state. And that's the key to understanding what Jesus means here. Jesus is saying to his disciples, this is where it begins. This is where it begins. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's not about seeing oneself in relation to one another. That's how the Pharisee viewed himself before God. It's rather seeing oneself in relationship to God. 
That's how the tax collector saw things. It's not about how you see yourself with one another here this morning. It's how do you see yourself in the presence of God. As we draw near to God, as we come into his light, we become ever more aware of that filth that is on us and in us that scripture calls sin. And we realize that on the basis of our sin, we deserve nothing but God's wrath. Because we have nothing to offer. We have nothing to plead. We have nothing with which to buy God's favor. Without God's intervention, his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, we would be dead in our trespasses and sins. That's what David realized. Read Psalm 51. There's a psalm written out of the heart of a man who understood his wretched state. This, then, is what it is meant by being poor in spirit, Martin Lloyd-Jones says. It means a complete absence of pride, a complete absence of self-assurance and self-reliance. It means a consciousness that we are nothing before God. It is nothing, therefore, that we can produce. It is nothing that we can do in ourselves. It is just a tremendous awareness of our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. That, he says, is to be poor in spirit. None of us can earn our way into heaven. None of us can earn our way into the kingdom of God. When you get towards the end of Jesus' teaching in chapter 7, he says this. He speaks one day of how many will stand before him and they will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons? This is in verse 21 and 20 to 23 of chapter 7. Did we not perform many miracles in your name? And what is it Jesus says to them in response? He tells them plainly, Jesus says, I never knew you. I never knew you. They will stand before him speaking as if of all they have done is what should enable them to come into God's kingdom. And he says, I never knew you. As if that earns them the right to be part of his kingdom. But it's not about that, is it? One of the most fundamental aspects of the gospel right here and that's why Jesus begins with blessed are the poor in spirit. His first statement, not just of the Beatitudes, but his opening statement of this teaching that he's given to his disciples. Before we can get any further, we have to grasp this truth. It's not about us. It's not about or because of anything we have done or are doing or can do or will do. We have absolutely nothing to offer God because we are spiritually bankrupt. But this is the wonderful news of the gospel. God took the initiative. God stepped in. God has stepped into our mess. The word became flesh and made his dwelling tabernacled among us. God sent Jesus. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 5, 8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
God didn't turn his back on us and said, you worthless, filthy, useless individuals. God stepped into our mess and he says, yes, I see you have nothing to offer. But I have something to give you. Just as we saw in the parable of the, the uh, Good Samaritan, God has paid it all through Jesus. Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 9. It is by grace you have been saved. Through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. You see that? You are saved by God's grace. Through faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, it is not of yourselves. It's nothing you've done. It's everything he has done. And that is a gift. It's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. And so Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All those who acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy and through faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, turn back to God in repentance. There is a beautiful promise that God gives and his promises are forever. Psalm 119. All his promises are eternal. What greater promise than to be given the kingdom of God? For that is what is given to all those who are redeemed by the blood of Jesus through faith in him. You are made a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Not because of anything you've done, but because of everything he has done through his son, Jesus. Consider Jesus. Think about what Jesus did for you. Consider Jesus as he entered Jerusalem to face the pain and the suffering of the cross. Many watching him enter expected him to come into Jerusalem triumphant to overthrow the Roman rulers by force and establish a new empire. That's what they were hoping and thinking he was going to do. But that was never his intent. He was going to do something far greater than that. He was establishing a kingdom that is eternal. He is establishing a kingdom that is greater than any we've experienced. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, in John 18, 36. If it were, he said, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. My kingdom is from another place, he says. But in order for Jesus to do that, it meant first he would be humiliated in public. He would be scourged. He would be beaten. He would be bruised. And eventually he would be killed. But gloriously, he would rise again three days later. And having won the victory over sin and the grave, and because Jesus has won that victory, we, through faith in him, are brought into the kingdom of heaven and made citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But first, we have to acknowledge our spiritual poverty. There's that hymn by August Toplady, some of you may, re may remember. Nothing 
In my hand I bring, only to the cross I cling. Nothing in my hand I bring, because there is nothing we can bring. We come as we are, broken, bankrupt. And we hold on to all that God has done through Jesus on the cross at Calvary. So, concluding then, to the Christian among us this morning or online, to the non-Christian among us or online, my prayer is that you will genuinely reflect on what we've thought about this morning. Reflect on what you have heard this morning. Maybe it's just one statement. Maybe it's one thing that is stuck in your mind right now. Reflect on that. Consider all that God has done through Christ so that you might be saved. Jesus emptied himself. He came to earth to dwell among men. He laid aside all his rights. Read Philippians 2. And status as part of the Godhead and lived, suffered, and died, taking upon himself the punishment for our sin. He endured God's wrath on the cross so that we might not have to. But he is risen, victorious, and now is ascended, glorious, with the Father. So that all those, as God promises, all those who come in complete humility, as poor in spirit, might be made right with God through him. If you have an opportunity in closing, when you, when, when you have a moment, today if possible, read Psalm 34. I just want to read you some verses out of Psalm 34. Reflect on the words of the psalmist and how they relate to what we've been thinking about this morning. In verse 6 of Psalm 34, it says this, This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. If you've not called out to the Lord yet, call out to him this morning. And you will realize, just as the psalmist was able to declare, this poor man called out, and the Lord heard him. In verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Notice what he says. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. I trust that any of you who through faith have been made right with God have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. But if you haven't, I encourage you again this morning, taste and see that the Lord is good. For truly blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Verse 9, those who fear him lack nothing. Those who fear him lack nothing. Verse 10, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And then go down to verse 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
when we call out to him, he hears and he saves. He moves the mountains. Our God is mighty to save. We sung it this morning. And then lastly, verse 22. The Lord redeems his servants. Look at that promise that comes after those words. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. No one will be. There is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you come to him as one who is poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt, he hears, he saves, he redeems, and there is no condemnation for you are in him. And so I urge you this morning, taste and see the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for all you have done through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we realize that there is none amongst us who is worthy of that gift of God. That free gift of grace that you have offered. Father, we come wretched and poor, broken and in need, great need. Father, hear our cry this morning. Heal us, save us, redeem us, renew us, refresh us this morning, we pray, that we might be able to go from this place truly knowing we are blessed, not because of anything we have done, but because of everything you have done. Thank you for your word, in Jesus' name, amen.